Welcome back to Fanfatals. Take a ride with us on the Hogwarts Express. Walk down Main Street with our best super pals. And defy gravity as we talk about all things fandom. Hello and welcome back to Fanfatals, a member of the Real Fans Podcast Network. I'm Emma. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to Spooktober, where we will be discussing the history of horror films from the early influences pre-film to some more recent horror films. Yes, and before we get started, we wanted to give our condolences to the friends and family of Dame Angela Lansbury and Robbie Coltrane, who passed away on October 12th and 14th, respectively. Yes, and it, everything comes in threes, right? First was the Queen. Yeah, first was the Queen, then Dame Angela Lansbury and, and then Robbie Coltrane. Robbie Coltrane. Which yep. I ended up watching Sorcerer's Stone the night he passed, because I was Aww. sad. Yeah. <laughs> That's really sad. I know Universal put flowers up next yeah. to him on Halloween. And it was also um, the Leaky, called, um, Leaky Con. So, like, one of the largest Harry mm-hmm. Potter conventions was the week, was the Friday that it happened, was the yeah. Friday of that convention starting. Yeah. But. Very sad. You know. He was young, too. He wasn't that old. Yeah, he was, like, 72. Yeah. It wasn't, like, 96 and 96. Yeah. But, but anyway, we have a lot to cover today, so yeah. we should get into this because this is legit, guys, 15 pages of notes, literally 15 pages. Yes. So we're going to start with pre-film. So early sources of material that would influence horror films include gruesome or fantastical elements in the epic of Gilgamesh, where heroes fight monsters, and the Bible, where plagues and apocalypses are discussed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, we watched Mother last year, which was basically a horror yeah. film about the, Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, if you actually sit down and read the Bible, you're like, dang, this is pretty gruesome. You're like, mm-hmm. yikes. Yeah. It's big yikes. Yeah. Uh, also, like, murder. Murder. Lots of murder. Actually, a lot of people killing their sons and murdering other people. (laughs) Yeah. And sacrifices. And torture. Yeah. And famine. And... Yeah. Lots of crazy stuff. I mean, the seven um, deadly plagues. Seven deadly sins. Or sins. (laughs) One of them was a plague. Yeah. Plague is... No. That's the sign of the apocalypse. Yes. That's the five, five, four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yes, you're right. <laughs> anyway, so uh, <laughs> belief in ghosts, demons, and the supernatural have long existed in folklore of many cultures and religions that would go on to be integral elements of horror films. Zombies, for example, um, originated from Haitian folklore. Yeah, which I found that very interesting. I agree. That's like not what I would have expected. Yeah. I don't know what I would have expected it to come from, but... Not Haitian. Yeah, definitely not Haitian. Well, 
That's Maybe. not the first thing that I would have thought. Yeah, same. Um, classical dramas also include elements later expanded on, upon by horror films, such as Hamlet, which includes vengeful specters, exhumed skulls, multiple stabbings, and characters succumbing to madness. Also witches. Also witches, but that's Macbeth. Oh. Not Hamlet. Wrong one. (laughs) Hamlet's the to be or not to be. That is the question. Hamlet's the Lion King. Yes. Yeah. That that that's the easier one and not to be or not to be. (laughs) That is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and errors, that's all I remember. Same. Ophelia is one of my dream roles. You would kill Ophelia. You'd be so good. I would. Let's see here. Early Gothic fiction, such as The Castle of Or... On Toronto? On Toronto in uh, 1764, and works of Anne Radcliffe dealt with the stories involving seemingly supernatural doings and magnetic yet repulsive villains set in castles, but with their supernatural pretenses often explained in the end. Yes, and the most famous of these gothic novels was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from 1818, which would be adapted into several film adaptations. Yes, and then in the 1830s and 40s, American writer Edgar Allan Poe wrote several stories that would be translated to the film screen in the future. These included The Black Cat, The Murders in the Room Morgue, uh, The Pit and the Pendulum, The Fall of the House of Usher, and The Mask of Red Death. And Poe's tales often presented women who were dead, dying, or spectral, and focused on these obsessions of their male protagonists. Yes. I mean, The Raven was a definite one that I read in class. And also the one... Oh, the Telltale Heart. Yes. So, here's a fun story. In high school, around Halloween time, and it was like our fall play, that we took the stories of Edgar Allan Poe and like used a different... styles of theater to tell these stories and so my group we like literally everybody just had to like pull a style out of out of a hat and we all were given the script of our story and we had to split it up into parts into lines and we had to say how we wanted to yeah uh do it and so uh and we had to include one like non-traditional method okay and so our group we chose um, shadow puppetry. Okay. And so we took uh, we took an old school projector, you know, like a um, wow, like old school yeah. with the light on the bottom and the magnifying glass, and it shoots it on the wall. Yeah. So we took one of those and we took a bunch of paper and like made these like paper puppets and oh, used God. that. And so the heart was one of them, and like we had it beating wow. in the floor. And um, our main storyteller was. Um, like the the narrator in like a straight jacket telling the <gasps> events of the story. That's cool. And we were all puppeteering the story. It was yeah. really cool. We also had holes. I remember this really vividly. We also had f- holes in the bottom of the stage and these like catacombs basically that we crawled under and like yeah. popped out. It was so cool. We had to ride skateboards and we were all in skirts. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. That's and it was so outside. Fun. It was That's a blast. so much fun. Um, yeah, I remember my AP Lit class, um, we read a bunch of different Edgar Allan Poe, I mean, we read Frankenstein around this time, Mm -hmm. and other just, like, classic gothic literature in the month of October for Halloween. Mm -hmm. I also think that 
there's this one book that Edgar or the story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote called The Cask of Amontillado. <gasps> yes, that one would be such a good movie. That one would. I think that would be such a good horror movie. I love Edgar Allan Poe's writing. I agree. It's great. And it stands the test of time. You know, it's one of those things that's like, it's very metaphorical. So like you can really like feed into it what you want. Yeah. Like, like it's very straightforward at the same time. But like if you actually like dig deeper, you actually see the metaphors and the metaphors like are pretty timeless, I think. Yes. Anyway. We should probably move on. Um, <laughs> so more key horror texts would be produced in the late 1800s and early 1900s than in all centuries preceding it. And these include The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1886, The, pro- uh, the Picture of Dorian Gray in 1890, um, Trilby in 1894, The King in Yellow in 1895, The Island of Dr. Moru in 1896, Dracula in 1897, The Invisible Man, also in 1897, The Turn of the Screw in 1898, The Hound of the Baskervilles in 1902, Ghost Stories of an Antiquary? I don't know. I think it's Antiquary. In in 1904, and finally, The Phantom of the Opera in 1911. And as these and many similar novels and short stories were being made, early cinema was beginning in 1890. Yes. So many of these stories were not specifically focused on the horrific, but lingered in popular culture because of their horrific elements and set pieces that would become cinema staples. Specifically Dracula. I mean, Dracula is still a Halloween staple to this day. Bram Stoker. Like, even Hotel Transylvania. He's the main character in that. Yeah, so, like, from from the 1890s, two movies that have come out in the past five years, you know? Yeah. Is very, very classic. Same with uh, Dr. Frankenstein, right? Mm-hmm. Though most adaptations of Frankenstein are incorrect, based on the book. Yes, but the character, Frankenstein's monster, is yes. still... Very Still, popular. like, one of the, yeah. the uh, like, mascots of Halloween. yeah. The only one that I remember us watching in my AP Lit class was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That was the name of the film. Mm. It's more recent. That one's the only one that's pretty accurate to the novel. Hmm. Interesting. So, critic and his... Now we're moving on to early film. Um, critic and historian Kim Newman described George's Miller's La Manor du Diable. As the first horror film with its imagery coming from centuries, what? French. I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with its imagery coming from centuries of book, or books, legends, and stage plays featuring imagery of demons, ghosts, witches, a, and a skeleton and a haunted castle, which transforms into the devil. The film has no story, but a series of trick shots and vaudeville acts filmed. Malays made over 500 films between 1886 and 1914, ranging from historical re- uh, recreation, religious films, dramas, literary ad- adaptations, and false newsreels. Hold on. So in like, what, 40 years? Less than 40 years? 30 less years? Than. 30, little more than 30 years? I can do math. 
28. 28 years. Okay, 30 years. In the course of 30 years, he made... Sorry, yeah, 30 years. He made how many films? Over uh, 500. 500? Lord. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, definitely not like the types of films we see today. They're definitely more... Oh, yeah. I mean, this is what, 1914? Yeah, that's the last one. The first one was in 1886. So, you know, they're just like baby films. Yeah. They're not two hours long. They're each like three minutes. <laughs> exactly. Which is why he was able to make 500. In the early 20th century, films became popular around the world and production was so hectic that often told tales were made and then remade within months of each other. So adaptations of the work with Poe um, were often adapted in France, such as Le Pou de la <laughs> Pendule in 1909 and America with the Sealed Room in 1909 as well as The Raven in 1912, and The Pit and The Pendulum in 1913. Yes. Other famous horror characters made their film debut in the era, including Frankenstein's Monster with Edison's Frankenstein, 1910, Life Without Soul, 1915, and the Italian production Il Mostro di Frankenstein in 1920. Several adaptations of other novels, like The Picture of Dorian Gray, were adapted around the world, including Denmark, Dorian Gray's Portrait in 1910, Russia, Portrait Doriana Greya, 1915, Germany, Das Bildnis <laughs> des Dorian Gray, and Hungary, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, in 1917. As elet Sure. I, that's my guess. That's my best guess. Jeez, I didn't realize we were going to have like a language lesson here today. <laughs> Same. Um, the most adapted horror story, however, was The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which included early adaptations like William Siegel's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1908. And this was followed by several versions, including the British version of the story, The Duality of Man in 1910, a Danish production, Den Gavinsch. Speaker. <laughs> I'm trying so hard. Opindeles. <laughs> Another American film in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 2012. In 1912. <laughs> and in 1920, three versions were made. Uh, J. Charles Hayden's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. John S. Roberts' Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And F.W. Murnau's Der Johnskopf. Yeah. That sounds super And boring. only a few actors and directors began specializing specifically in the genre. Um, these included the German actor and director Paul Wagner, who would portray Bolden in The Student of Prague in 1913. Um, Wagner would often work on stories involving a Jewish folk tale character, Gollum, with Der Gollum in 1915, a sequel that would also parody with The Gollum and the Dancing Girl, 1917, and a prequel, The Gollum, How He Came Into the World, in 1920. <laughs> Same. I'm obsessed I with I want to watch these. Can we watch these? So, that's great. We got to find these and, like, watch um, them. That's the hilarious. The German film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 
1920 was described by Newman as having, quote, breakout performances, end quote, by actors Werner Krauss and Conrad Veidt. Veidt also worked in Der Graf von Cagliostro in 1920, The Hands of Orlack, 1924, and both Veidt and Krauss would work together in The Student of Prague, 1926, and Waxworks in 1924, where Krauss would portray the devil and Jack the Ripper, respectively. Bornu, who had previously adapted Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, made an adaptation of Dracula with Nurse Furatu. Isn't that how you... In 1922. Yes, um, yeah. That's like the Newman most popular that one. this adaptation, quote, stands as the only screen adaptation of Dracula to be primarily interested in horror from the character's rat-like features and thin body. The film was even more so than Caliargi, a template for the horror film, end quote. And yeah, there he be. Yeah. We'll post it on our Instagram. And then Hollywood would not fully develop horror film stars, but actor and makeup artist Lon Chani would often portray the monsters in film, such as the ape man in A Blind Bargain, 1922, Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1923, and Eric in The Phantom of the Opera in 1925. And Eric is the name of the phantom. What? Did you Eric not know this? Eric is the name of the Phantom? Also, this can all no! be... No! Hold on. There you go. What the heck? I would not Eric expect his name K. to be Eric. Like... Yeah. Which is, like, annoying. But anyway. Moving into the 1930s. Um, in 1924, British producer Hamilton Deanne premiered a stage version of Dracula at the Grand Theater in Derby, England. An American version had premiered on Broadway in 1927 and featuring actor Bella Lugosi as Count Dracula. Rhodes described the play as taking America by storm in June of 1930. Universal Studios officially purchased the rights to both the play and the novel Dracula. And Dracula premiered on February 12th of 1931 at the Roxy Theater in New York, again with Lugosi as the title role. Contemporary critical response to Dracula was described by Tom Weaver, Michael Braunas, and John Braunas, the author of the book Universal Horrors, as uniformly positive and even, and some even laudatory, and as, quote, one of the best received critically of any of the Universal Horror pictures, end quote. Um, Universal was reportedly surprising, or surprised at the strong box office and critical praise for the film, and forged ahead to make similar productions for Frankenstein 1931 um, and Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1932, which would also star Lugosi for their 1931-1932 season. A British filmmaker, James Whale, directed Frankenstein starring Boris Karloff as the monster, also proved to be a hit for Universal, which led to both Dracula and Frankenstein making film stars of Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, respectively. Um, While Karloff did not have any dialogue in Frankenstein, he was allowed to speak in Universal's The Mummy, 1932. The original, original. The original, original. 
Um, and it's so interesting, like, hearing all the backstory for this because of Universal Orlando, we have the horror film Monsters makeup show. Yeah. So they do, like, a brief version of this there. And, of course, they have the mummy ride. So it's interesting seeing all the, like, starting. Yeah, and it's also interesting to see, like, this is... How early these characters came into being. Yeah, these characters have been around for a long time, and these are, like, the icons of Halloween. Mm -hmm. Like, these characters really became more and, like, kind of transcended the actual stuff, like, the actual film itself. Um, um, so Karloff was allowed to speak in Universal's The Mummy in 1932, a film Newman described as the studio knowing, quote, what they were getting, end quote, patterning the film close to the plot of Dracula, while historian Gregory W. Monk called the, quote, one, two punch Boris Karloff needed after Frankenstein to boost his stardom, end quote. Uh, Lugosi and Karloff would star together in several Poe adaptations in the 1930s, including The Black Cat uh, of 1934, The Raven of 1935, and other horrors features like The Invisible Ray of 1936. So, following the release of Dracula, the Washington Post declared the film's box office success led to a cycle of similar films, while the New York Times stated in a 1936 overview that Dracula and the arrival of sound film began the, quote, real triumph of these spectral thrillers, end quote. Other studios began developing their own horror projects, with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer making uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of 1931 and Mad Love of 1935, and Paramount Pictures with Island of the Lost Souls in 1932 and Murders in the Zoo in 1933, as well as Warner Bros. with Dr. X of 1932 and Mystery of the Wax Museum in 1933. Universal would also follow up with Wales' The Old Dark House, 1932, and The Invisible Man, 1933, and Bride of Frankenstein, 1935. Um, RKO Pictures had also developed their own monster movie with King Kong, 1933, which Newman felt owned more to Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World than the Dracula Frankenstein cycle. And King Kong is another one that's still around to this day. I mean, he had a Broadway show at one point. I mean... Remember that? For a brief period, yes. (laughs) Um, But no, that's like, that's another one. Like, they just did, like, not too long ago. I don't know, maybe it's 10 years ago. The Island of the Planet of the Apes or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, like, that's, like, all based off of King Kong. All those Planet of the Apes movies are, like... Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So. Aren't they based on a book, though, the Planet of the Apes? Probably. But it's also probably based on, like, the book's probably based on King Kong. Just the idea of it, you know? Like, you can't, like, they're not mutually exclusive, like, these kind of stories. Like, they all are kind of connected and inspired by each other in some way or another. The book... Planet of the Apes was made by a French author, Pierre Boyles, in 19 thir- uh, 1963. There you go. Interesting. So, um, other productions included independent uh, studios in the United States, such as Halper- the Halperin Organization, making White Zombie in 1933 with Lugosi, 
um, whose success led to a series of voodoo-related films such as Drums O' Voodoo in 1934, Black Moon in 1934, and Ogana. There's no date for that one. Um, a few productions outside of the Americas were also made, such as the British film The Ghoul uh, start, uh, from uh, 1933, starring Karloff, and for the, sorry, excuse me, and the films of Todd Slaughter. Many horror films of this era provoked public outcry and censors cut many of the more violent and gruesome scenes from such films as Frankenstein, Island of Lost Souls, and The Black Cat. Um, in 1933, the British Board of Film Censors, BBFC, introduced an H rating for films labeled horrific for, quote, any films likely to fright frighten, or horrify children under the age of 16 years. Um, in 1935, the president of the BBFC, Edward Short, wrote, quote, Although a separate category has been established for these horrific films, I am sorry to learn that they are on the increase. I hope that, they, I hope that the producers and renters will accept this word of warning and discourage this type of subject as far as possible. Yeah, buzzkill. End quote. Yeah. <laughs> he proved obviously to be wrong. Yeah. Or, not wrong, but... I mean, the... He didn't stop the industry. Yeah, the horror genre is still so popular to this day. Yeah. Um, so, as the United Kingdom was a significant market for Hollywood, American producers listened to Short's warning, and the number of Hollywood-produced horror films decreased in 1936. A trade paper variety reported that Universal Studios' abandonment of horror films after the release of Dracula's Daughter of 1936 was that, quote, European countries, especially England, are prejudiced against this type of product, end quote. The latter half of the decade had Karloff making low-budget films for Monogram Pictures and Lugusi on being on welfare. Um, at the end of the decade, a profitable re-release of Dracula and Frankenstein would encourage Universal to produce Son of Frankenstein in 1939, featuring both Lugusi and Karloff, starting off a resurgence of the horror film that would continue into the mid-1940s. Um, so, that's going to lead us into the 1940s. So, after the success of The Son of Frankenstein in 1939, Universal's horror films received uh, what author Rick Warland of the horror film called A Second Wind, and horror films continued to be produced at a feverish pace well into the mid-1940s. Universal looked into their 1930s horror properties to develop new follow-ups such as The Invisible Man Returns, 1940, and The Mummy's Hand, 1941. Man-Made Monster was a pivotal release for Universal's horror output, um, include introducing actor Lon Chaney Jr., Sorry, let me try that again. Um, Man-Made Monster was a pivotal release for Universal's horror output, introducing actor Lon Chaney Jr. He had received attention for his performances as Lenny Small in Of Mice and Men from 1939. That movie, it hurt. That book hurt. Yeah. That book that hurts. Hurt. Both movies hurt because there's a later one with um, Malkovich, yes. John Malkovich. Yes. But this one, oh, hurt. Yeah. Um, Universal saw potential in making Cheney a new star to replace Karloff, as he had not distinguished himself as 
either A or B pictures. Cheney Jr. would become a horror star for the decade, showing the films, uh, the Wolfman series, portraying the mummy three times in the mummy series, Frankenstein's monster in Ghost of Frankenstein in 1942, and as Count Dracula in The Son of Dracula in 1943. Universal also created new horror series, such as the three-picture feature about Paula, the ape woman, starting with Captive Wild Woman in 1943. Um, Universal began crossing their horror franchises, which in what was colloquially called Monster Rally films, beginning with Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, 1943, which had Frankenstein's monster meet the Wolfman. Further crossovers that included um, Count Dracula continued in the 1940s with House of Frankenstein, 1944, and House of Dracula, 1945. So one has to wonder if, like, House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein were, like, the inspo for Hotel Transylvania. Most definitely, right? I mean, because those movies, right, the whole thing was about crossover and, like, Frankenstein's monster meeting Dracula yeah. and the Hey, this the is the first man. MCU and... crossover event. Oh my gosh. Or Disney Channel crossover event. It's the uh, HCU horror yeah. cinematic universe. Well, we, I know we talked about it in the Disney Channel episode, but the like sweet life of Wizards of Waverly place Hannah Montana. The best one is the That's So Sweet Life of Hannah Montana. That's, that's the one. Yeah. That that's was the, the first one. one. Yeah. That was the first one because it was That's So Raven, Sweet Life of Zach and Cody and Hannah Montana. Yeah. And then there was another one and it was um, like Wizards on Deck, I think is what it was called. And it was Wizards in um, Sweet Life on Deck. Yes. Something that like one. that. Something. Something like that. Picture Studios also developed films that imitated the style of Universal's horror output. Karloff worked with Columbia Pictures, acting in various films as a mad doctor type character, uh, starting with The Man That They Could Not Hang in 1939, while Lugosi worked between Universal and Poverty Row Studios, such as Producers Releasing Corporation, PRC, uh, for The Devil Bat in 1941, and Monogram for nine feature films. Um, in March 1942, producer Val Luton ended his working relationship with ind- independent producer David O. Selznick to work for RKO Radio Pictures' Charles Corner, becoming the head of a new unit created to develop B-movie, uh, B-list movie, B-list movie horror film features? Yeah. B-movie? Okay. Not really sure what the difference is, so... Um, according to DeWitt Bowden, the screenwriter of Luton's first horror production, Cat People of 1942. Oh my gosh, it's cats. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Bowden watched British and American horror and suspense films that he felt were, quote, typical of what he did not want to do, end quote. While director Jacques Tournier, Tor- yeah, I'm going to go with that. Recalled Luton deciding not to make a, quote, cheap horror movie that the studio expected, but something intelligent in good taste, end quote. Newman later described Cat People and the other horror productions by Luton, such as I Walked with a Zombie in 1943 and The Seventh Victim in 1943, also as, quote, polished, doom-haunted, and poetic, end quote. 
while film critic Roger Ebert, the films Luton produced in the 1940s were landmarks in American movie history, end quote. Excuse me, I think I misspoke there. While film, film critic Roger Ebert commented that the films that Luton produced in the 1940s were landmarks in American movie history. That's probably it. Um, several horror films of the 1940s borrowed from cat people specifically feature a film a female character who fears that she has inherited the tendency to turn into a monster or attempt to replicate the shadowy visual style of the film with Jungle Woman, 1944, The Soul of a Monster, 1944, The Woman Who Came Back, 1945, She-Wolf of London, 1946, the Cat Creeps, 1946, and The Creeper, 1948. Hey, what's up with all this cat stuff? <laughs> like, Why cats? Know. Did they know that ca- the musical Cats would end up being a horror yeah. film? Definitely it is. is. <laughs> it, it, yes. yes. Um, between 1947 and 1951, Hollywood made almost no new horror films. And between this period, American studios were re-releasing their back catalog of horror film productions by studios such as Universal and Monogram. Uh, box office receipts had fallen sharply due to the declining theater attendance, uh, leading to the Motion Picture Herald reporting that seven of the 11 major producer-distributor companies, including MGM, Paramount, RKO, 20th Century Fox, Universal, Warner Bros., and PRC, would re-release their previous season films. And in this period between 1947 and 1951, at least 25 Bela Lugosi horror films were re-released theatrically. And I mean... Now it's, it's no surprise. Oh. The war had just ended. Like, the war ended 1946. Yeah. So it's like... I, I wouldn't want to go see a horror film after that. Definitely not. Like, these are, like, soldiers who came back from war and lived horror films. Like, I, yeah. I'm sure this is not, like, something that many people were interested in, right? The, the beginning of the 50s and the end of the 40s yeah. was, like, all about, like, patriotic films and being patriotic and celebrating you know winning the war so so let's move into the 1950s okay yeah some great ones we got here yeah um and now we're gonna start moving into color films a little bit later on um technicolor well studies Technicolor, Wizard of Oz. Well, studies suggest that gothic horror had fallen out of fashion between the release of House of Dracula in 1945 and The Curse of Frankenstein in 1957. Small glimpses of the genre appeared in films such as The Son of Dr. Jekyll, 1951, The Strange Door, 1951, The Black Castle, 1952, and House of Wax in 1953. Okay. Now that we've talked about uh, so many versions of these movies, I feel like next year we have to go back and watch some of these. I know. We should choose, like, a, like Dracula or something and watch... All of them? A bunch of the... Not all of the Dracula. But, like... I want to do an episode about the women who created horror films. So more about Mary Shelley okay. and stuff like that next October. 
Oh, prior to the release of Hammer Film Productions' <laughs> gothic films, the last gothic horror films of the 1950s often featured stars like Bela Lugosi, Lon Chaney Jr., and Boris Karloff, and films made by low-budget indie film directors like Ed Woods or original LeBorg, or producers like Howard W. Koch. Hammer originally began developing American-styled science fiction films in the early 1950s, but later branched into horror with their color films, The Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula, 1958. And these films would birth two horror film stars, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Wow. Yeah. So, real quick fun fact. Uh, these science fiction style films of the early 1950s are what inspired, uh, uh, freaking what's his name? Richard O'Brien. Okay. Riff Raff. He's the guy who wrote the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. He was inspired by the, the early science fiction films of like the 50s and 60s, and that's why he made Rocky Horror. Interesting. Yes. I thought you were going to do a who Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing thing was. Oh, no. You could do that. <laughs> well, Christopher Lee is Dooku, right? In Star Wars? I believe so. Yes, Christopher Lee is Count Dooku. And Peter Cushing was Tarkin in Star Wars. There you go. So, start in 1950s horror films and end up being a villain in Star Wars. Yeah. One in the 70s and the other one in the 90s. But still. True. Yeah. So, along with Hammer's more science fiction-oriented series, Quartermass, both the gothic and science fiction films of Hammer, would develop many similar films within the years. And among the most influential horror films of the 1950s was The Thing from Another World from 1951, with Newman stating that countless science fiction's science fiction horror films of the 1950s would follow in its style, while the film The Man from Planet X from 1951 was still in debt to universal horror style of filming with a bearded scientist and foggy sets. For five years following the release of The Thing from Another World, nearly every film involving aliens, dinosaurs, or radioactive mutants would be dealt with matter-of-fact characters as seen in The Thing from Another World. Now I'm thinking maybe I should go. I have a Halloween party this weekend, and I'm thinking maybe I should go with, like, The Thing from Alien poking out of my stomach. Yeah, because this is definitely, like, what inspired Alien. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so let's see here. Even films that adapted for older characters had science fiction leanings, such as The Vampire of 1957, The Werewolf of 1956, and Frankenstein 1970 of 1958. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like in the future. Kind of. Um, so these were all influenced by the atomic-inspired monsters of the era. Which, I mean, this even makes sense that this is what came out after the war with, like, kind of, like, the science kind of stuff. Future. Yeah, and early 50s, early 60s, we're starting to get into the space race, yeah. you know? Makes sense. Um, films with a strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde theme also appeared with The Neanderthal Man, 1953, The Fly, 1958, Monster on the Campus, 1958, and the Hideous Sun Demon, 1958. Real quick. Okay. They turned The Fly into an episode of The Fairly Odd Parents, And yes. it scared the pants off of me. 
Same. So that's another one that's still around. Very topical. A lot of people know it. Yeah. Also, I've heard a lot of people say that's the scariest movie they've ever seen. Interesting. Which I believe. Interesting. So uh, films from the 1950s reflected the filmmaking style of the era, and these included some horror films being shot in 3D, such as The Mad Magician, Mad Magician of 1954, Phantom of Rue Morgue in 1954 as well, and The Maze of 1953. Director William Castle also attracted horror audiences with his gimmick-themed horror films, such as The Tingler from 1959 and The House on a Haunted Hill in 1959 that evolved props and effects happening within the cinema. Also, probably uh, a motivation or a inspiration for Richard O'Brien and the Rocky Horror Picture yeah. Show, right? You throw stuff. You got props when you walk in the <laughs> you door. You throw stuff. I mean, you do. Yeah. Also, there's a game called Haunt on the House on the Hill. Interesting. Or Haunt in the House on the Hill or something like that. It's a very fun game, and I've... I have a feeling that this sort of served as an inspiration. I mean, it's a puzzle game, and every time it, you play it, it's a little bit different. Um, but it's very fun. Horror films aimed at a young audience featuring teenage monsters grew popular in the 1950s with several productions from American International Pictures, AIP, and productions of Herman Co- um, Cohen with I Was a Teenage Werewolf, 1957, and I was a teenage Frankenstein, 1957. <laughs> okay. This led to later productions like Daughter of De- um, Dr. Jekyll, 1957, and Frankenstein's Daughter, 1958. Okay, I have to question if this influenced the writers of Zombie Prom. Or Zombies, the Disney Channel. Maybe. Trying to appeal. It's spooky. Yeah. Horror films also explained further into international productions, uh, sorry, expanded further into international productions in the 1950s, such as Mexican production El Vampiro in 1957. In Italy, Ricardo Frida and Mario Bava developed early Italian horror films with I Vampiri in 1957 and Caltiki, the Immortal Monster in 1959. Productions also expanded into the Philippines, Terror is a Man in 1959, Germany, The Head, also in 1959, and Horrors of Spider Island in 1960, and in France with uh, Eyes Without a Face in 1960. Also, going back to the young audience, like teenage monster thing, My Babysitter's a Vampire. Mm -hmm. I thought about that while you were saying I was like, (gasps) Twilight. Twilight. Um, so now let's move into the 1960s. <laughs> I like how I said Twilight, and that was it. We were like, yep. <laughs> yep. Moving on. <laughs> okay, so now let's move to the 1960s. Newman stated that the film, um, the horror film changed drastically, or dramatically in 1960. Same um, thing. Yeah. Specifically with Alfred Hitchcock's film Psycho, 1960, based on the novel of Robert Blotch, Newman declared that the film elevated the idea of a multiple personality serial killer that set the tone for a future film that was only touched upon in earlier melodramas and film noirs, such as Hangover Square, 1945, 
and While the City Sleeps, 1956. So fun fact about Psycho, the blood in the shower scene isn't blood. It's Hershey's chocolate syrup. I don't know if it's actually the Hershey's brand, but it's chocolate syrup. It's not actually blood. I feel like I knew that. Okay, well, it's it's a very common fact, but I just like it. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I also, 1970, you're going to really like because it's a lot of Stephen King starting yeah. in the 1970s. Heck yeah. Uh, so the release of Psycho led to similar pictures about the psychosis of characters, including Whatever Happened to Baby Jane in 1962 and the block scripted Straight Jacket of 1964 by William Castle. The influence of Psycho continued into the 1970s with films ranging from Taste of Fear in 1961, Parent. Paranoiac in 1962 and Pretty Poison in 1968. And following Psycho, there was a brief reappearance of what Newman described as stately, tasteful horror films such as Jack Clayton's The Innocence in 1961 and Robert Weiss's The Haunting in 1963. Um, outside America, Japan released films to critical acclaim such as Masaki Kobayashi's Koiden, 1965, which won international awards, including special jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival. And Wait, was that's nominated- Cannes. Cannes? Yes, because it's in France. At the Cannes Film Festival and was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards. Emma, just edit it so it sounds like you did it perfect. Nobody needs to know. Okay. <laughs> Um, I do that a lot when, when I'm editing. I'm like, okay, and we corrected here. She corrected me. I corrected her. We know everything. Yeah. I do that a lot. Um, let's see here. Newman described Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby of 1968 and the other event horror film of the 1960s after Psycho. And the influence of Rosemary's Baby story involving satanic themes would not be felt until the 1970s with films like The Exorcist and The Omen of 1973 and 1976, respectively. um, Roger Corman convinced AIP to develop two cheap black and white horror films and use the budget of these two films to create the color film House of Usher, 1960. The film created its own cycle of Poe adaptations by Corman, including The Pit and the Pendulum, 1961, Tales of Terror, 1962, and The Raven, 1963, which provided roles for the aging horror stars such as Karloff and Shawnee Jr., Okay, just now when you said the House of Usher, all I could think of was, like, Usher the singer. <laughs> Honestly, same. I was like, that's weird. So it was like, Usher, Usher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, these films were made to compare with the British color horror films. Compete. From... What? Made to compete. What did I say? Compare. Oh, Sorry. Um, these films were made to compete with the British color horror films from Hammer in the United Kingdom featuring their horror stars Crushing and Fisher. Cushing. Sorry, Cushing and Fisher. Yeah. Um, Hammer made several films in their Frankenstein series between 1958 and 1973 while still producing one-offs such as The Reptile of 1966 and Plague of the Zombies of 1966 as well. 
Competition for Hammer appeared in the mid-1960s in the United Kingdom with amicus productions such as Dr. Terror's House of Horrors in 1964 and also featured actors Cushing and Lee. Unlike Hammer, Amicus drew from contemporary sources such as the Blotch, the Skull, or as Blotch. I'm gonna redo that. Sorry, Emma. Unlike Hammer, Amicus drew from contemporary sources such as Blotch, the Skull, 1965, and Torture Garden, 1967, which led to Hammer ad- um, adapting works by Dennis Wheatley, The Devil Rides Out, 1968. Mario Bava's Black Sunday of 1960 marked an increase in on-screen violence in film. Prior to Bava's film, Fisher's early Hammer films had attempted to push the envelope. The Curse of Frankenstein relied on makeup to depict the horror of the monster. Dracula had its gorier scenes cut by the British Board of Film Censors. And the violence in the backstory of the Hound of Bakersville... Baskersville, there we go, in 1959 was conveyed mostly through narration. The Violence in Psycho 1960, which was released a week earlier than Black Sunday, was portrayed through suggestion as its famous shower scene made use of fast cutting. Black Sunday, by contrast, depicted violence without suggestion. This level of violence would later be seen in other Italian genre films, such as the Spaghetti Western and the Gallo, including Bava's Own Blood and Black Lace, 1964, and the Gala of uh, Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci. Other independent productions of the 1960s expanded on the gore show in the films in a genre later described as the splatter film, which films by Herschel Gordon Lewis, such as Blood Feast, which led to similar-minded independent directors making similar works like Andy Milligan and Ted V. Mickles. Newman found that the true um, breakthrough of these independent films was George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, 1968, which set a new attitude for the horror film, one that was suspicious of authority figures, broke taboos of society, and was satirical between its more suspenseful set pieces. This is so true. Night of the Living Dead is such, like, an icon when it comes to horror films. Like, yeah, especially, like, teen horror films. Like, unparalleled. Yeah. Not necessarily that it's aimed at teens, just that, like, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's unparalleled. Night of the Living Dead, infamous. Um, so here we are. Last, uh, Black Sunday's focus on combining eroticism and horror, specifically the eroticism of a tortured body, a trend that other European ho- horror filmmakers like French Jean Roland and Spanish Jesus Franco would follow. Uh, Franco would make several horror films from the 1960s on borrowing the plot of Eyes Without a Face, 1960, uh, for the awful Dr. Orloff, 1962, while screenwriter and actor Jacinto Molina, under the name Paul Nanshi, began developing Spanish horror films by borrowing characters from universal properties such as La Marca del Hombre Lobo of 1968. So, The Wolfman. Yeah. And so we're going to take uh we're going to stop there for this week. Ooh, the spookiest thing, a two-part episode. Yes. 
and it's gonna be well so this one's coming out either wednesday night um the 19th or thursday morning the 20th we'll and then see. the next one will come out the following wednesday yes so you have to wait a whole week for 1970s to 2020s yeah yeah the scariest thing a part two yes so shall we get into this fandom news yeah all righty um mark landon baker is to join music man on broadway as mayor shin beginning in the month of october Guided tours are returning to Disneyland, and reservations are now available for two offerings. The latest guided tour highlighting Walt and Main Street USA in a tour called Walt's Main Street Story, and the return of holiday time at the Disneyland Resort. Get ready for the holiday remix coming to Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind at Walt Disney World's Epcot Park for a limited time this holiday season. Guests will get the chance to help save the galaxy on the attraction they know and love all while rocking out to a mashup of classic holiday tunes. Tony Award winner, winners Benj Pasek and Justin Paul are working on a new musical film adaptation of the popular video game series, The Oregon Trail. Which feels a lot like they're ripping off Team Starkid's show to Oregon. I'm just saying. I mean... Yeah. It's good, so, like, they just might. Yeah, I don't know. When they announced that, I was like, ugh. Just, like, put Trail to Oregon on Broadway. Yeah. Um, Gaten, Gaten Matarazzo, Jay Armstrong Johnson, Paul Alexander Nolan, Aaron Mackey, and more to join New York City Center's production of, Paradi um, of Parade, starring Ben Platt. At Disneyland, the Disney Animation Studios' 100th anniversary celebration will kick off starting January 27th of 2023, and this will also be the opening of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Oscar Isaac and Rachel Brosnahan will star in Lorraine Hanbury's rarely revived play, The Sign in Sydney Brewston's Window at BAM in Brooklyn starting on February 4th, with tickets starting at $35. Yes, love to see it. Accessible I, theater. Accessible theater and like Midge Maisel and like Moon Knight and Poe Dameron and everything. Yeah. So that'll be awesome. Yeah. We also have Umbaku, who will soon make his journey to Avengers Campus at Disney California Adventures Park with the celebration of Black Panther this November. Yes, and finally, for this episode, Tony Award-winning A Strange Loop will play its final Broadway performance on January 14th of 2023. Everything's closing. Everything's closing. I mean... So many new shows. I'm ready. Year. I am, Let's too. Let's see these new shows. I'm ready for Tony's 2023. I'm ready for the Sweeney Todd revival. Me, too! I'm so excited for the Sweeney Todd revival. It's going to be great. I want the guy who is known for the Barbie songs on TikTok to play Anthony so bad. Barbie songs? Yeah, the guy <gasps> that has... Yes! The, yes! Him. Yes! <laughs> the guy who like, has made it his whole brand that his um, voice teacher was the singing voice of Barbie in those films. Yes. Yes. He'd be great. Yes, I agree. That's so. Anthony, right? The sailor. Yeah. Okay. 
So we're going to see these lovely people in the outro. And we will also see you in part two next week. Yes. Um, so thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fan Fatales. We are a proud part of the Real Fans Podcast Network. That's right. And if you want to check out more shows on the network, you can find them at rf4rm.com. Next week, we will be continuing Spooktober as we finish talking about the history of horror films. And remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. And subscribe to us on YouTube. Please leave us a review and comment down below to tell us what you thought of the show. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FanFatalesPod for the latest updates. Now, Emma, where can people find you on social media? So my Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok are all at SniffyEmma, which is S-N-I-P-P-Y-E-M-S-A. What about you, Gabs? I'm at GabbyGent on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. That's G-A-B-Y-J-E-N-T. Our editing is by the wonderful Carol Lindsmeyer. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Bye!